Hello, and welcome back to A Sharper Life. I'm your host, Nikki Sharp, a two-time best-selling author, transformation coach, and I am here each week to give you actionable tips to help you overcome the challenges you might be facing in order to find more freedom and joy in your life. If you're new to the show and enjoy it, please be sure to give it a five-star review and what you enjoyed about this episode, as it helps others to find out about the world-class interviews, including the simple tips to change your life from myself and the experts that I interview. So today I have an incredible interview for you. I am talking with Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen is a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, and his new book, Change Your Brain Every Day, comes out March 21st. He is a physician, adult, and child psychiatrist, and founder of Amen Clinics with 11 locations across the U.S. They have the world's largest database of brain scans for psychiatry, totaling over 200,000 spec scans on patients from 155 countries. Dr. Amen is one of the most visible and influential experts on brain health and mental health, with millions of followers on social media, where just about every post and every video that he shares goes viral. And for good reason. This man is passionate about helping you learn to love your brain. In this interview, we talk about alcohol, marijuana, and the effects on the brain, the top supplements that you need in your life right now, how emotional stress takes a toll on your health and your brain health, and what addictions are doing to your body. This is an incredibly fascinating interview with a lot of takeaways, so I do hope that you have a pen and paper ready to take notes because there's going to be a lot. And without further ado, here's Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, it is a pleasure to have you here, and I want to jump just straight into the nitty-gritty. So you have scanned over 200,000 brains, ranging from nine months of age to 105. That's a big difference. And clearly, you have learned a lot and have a lot of data from this, which I know has led you to write your newest book, Change Your Brain Every Day. So I'd like to start out with why is it so important that we understand our brain health? Well, your brain is involved in everything you do and everything you are. And when it works right, you work right. And when it doesn't, you suffer. And the people around you suffer. And, you know, I've just come to really know that when your brain is healthy, people are happier, they're healthier because they make better decisions, they're wealthier because they make better decisions, and they're just more successful in anything they want to do. But when the brain is not healthy, for whatever reason, you had a head injury, you live in a mold-filled home, you had COVID, you're sadder, sicker, poorer, less successful because your decisions aren't quite as good. And the mission I have in life is to actually end the concept of mental illness because they're not mental, they're brain. And if you really want to make a dent in depression, get people's brains healthier. If you want people to be less anxious, we'll get their brains 
healthier. If you want to stem the tide of our addiction epidemic or ADHD epidemic or autism epidemic, you've got to get people's brains healthier. They're all manifestations of a brain that's not working right. So leading into my next question, actually, what does bad brain health or a bad scan show up like? And what does a good brain health show up like? And what are the direct causes of both good and a bad brain scan? Well, I've seen many of both good brains and bad brains and SPECT. So I do a study called Brain SPECT Imaging. SPECT looks at blood flow and activity looks at how your brain works. And it basically shows us three things, areas of the brain that are healthy, areas of the brain that are underactive, and areas of the brain that are overactive. And so, well, what can cause the brain to be healthy? And it actually starts before our parents made us. It starts with the health of a mother's eggs and her ovaries and the sperm that is created by the dad. And so we know if a man smoked in his teens, his kids are more likely to have problems. And most teenagers that never thinking it's not just about me. It's about generations of me. And so when a little girl is born, um, she's born with all of the eggs she'll ever have. And so her habits and the stress she's raised in is turning on or off certain genes that make illness more or less likely in her, but also in her babies and grandbabies. And so we we have to get this mindset if we're going to ever decrease the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Well, it starts the generation before, probably longer, but it starts the generation before. And healthy scan, full, even symmetrical activity. If your mom wanted you, if you were, if she ate right and she took her vitamins and her omega-3 fatty acids and she had sleep and support, she's just much more likely to have a healthy baby than not. And then, well, what are we feeding the baby? I think it was a recent study that 95% of baby food had lead in it. And it's like, no, you know, no wonder there's a high incidence of autism and ADHD. And so not to mention the products we put on babies' bodies and young children's bodies. There's this epidemic now. And, and I feel like I'm like all over the place, but- uh, <laughs> I love it. Keep going. There's this epidemic now of low testosterone in young males. And it's like, why? And I think it's the poisons that we're putting on their bodies. There's an app I like called Think Dirty. It's not what you think it is, but it allows you to scan all of your personal products and it tells you on a scale of one to 10 how quickly they're killing you. And so explaining bad scans, toxins, 
head trauma. Don't let your kids hit soccer balls with their head or play tackle football. Um, it's infections and mold exposure um, and chronic stress. Chronic stress, if you grow up in trauma, your brain tends to be busier than those who didn't. Interesting. And as you mentioned, the products that we're using, which I, I fully agree, it's a monstrosity at this point of what what people are being kind of duped into buying, quoted as healthy and, and labeled as that. So that makes me actually wonder, what can someone do? Let's say you did grow up in a either bad household or you grew up where, like I grew up having the standard American diet. And I want to get into that, the importance of food with our brain health. But let's say you did grow up in that. So I grew up on Lunchables and things that my parents just didn't know better. So what can someone do later on in life, say at my age, younger or later, to combat that negativity that's affected the brain? Well, the exciting news is your brain can change that you're not stuck with the brain you have. Um, you can make it better. It's public knowledge. I've been Miley Cyrus's doctor for a long time. And when she first came to me, she only wanted to eat yellow things, which is like macaroni and cheese and grilled cheese sandwiches and stuff like that. But uh, she has the number one song in the world right now, Flowers. So I'm so proud of her. And if you just see her on the cover of her new album, she is a stud. I mean, she just looks awesome because she eats right. She takes care of herself. She doesn't poison herself anymore. She's thoughtful. So growing up with a lot of trauma and a lot of bad habits, um, to where she is now. I mean, it's miraculous. So then you're talking about obviously the importance of eating correct. And that's something that I, I teach and I'm absolutely passionate about. What about supplements that we can start to take, not just for our brain health, because I know there are some that you really promote for the brain health and I want to go into those, but also for gut health and the gut microbiome and overall health, because there's now a supplement, a vitamin to do this, to do that, increase energy, lose weight. So what would you say are the the top brain supplements and top overall just health supplements that you'd recommend? So I think everybody should take a really great multiple vitamin because our diets are not what they could be, should be. Um, 65% of the population is low in vitamin D, for example. I think everybody should have their vitamin D level tested and then optimized. And most people I know need to take somewhere between two and 10,000 units of vitamin D a day um, just to get into an optimal range. People who have the normal level of vitamin D is 30 to 100. People over 40 have half the risk of cancer of those who are under 20. So that's sort of a big deal. I think everybody should be taking an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. I did a study looking at the omega-3 index. It should be above eight. That's really good for heart health. And whatever's good for your heart is good for your brain. 
and 98% of people were low in omega-3 fatty acids to add suboptimal levels. So I think that's those are the three, multiple vitamin, extra D, and an omega-3 fatty acid. And then it really depends on what you need. Do you need help with memory? Do you need help with focus? Do you need help um, with anxiety? Do you need help with your mood? I'm a huge fan of saffron, and I have a supplement company, BrainMD. I'm very proud of them. And, you know, sometimes I get criticized. It's like, why do you have a supplement company? It's just about the money. And I'm like, no, when I first started doing scans, some of the medications I prescribed were clearly toxic to brain function. And I'm like, first do no harm. And so I'm always thinking, how can I help my patients um, feel better without hurting them. And so I like St. John's Ward. I like magnesium. I like theanine. I like GABA. But, you know, there was not one brain-directed nutraceutical company. And I wanted things for me and I wanted things for my patients. So that's why I started BrainMD. And I'm so proud of them. And ultimately, you're... Your listeners could go to brain health assessment and know their brain type. So brainhealthassessment.com, 16 different types. Are you balanced? So basically, you need a multiple vitamin, omega-3 fatty acids, optimize your vitamin D level. Are you spontaneous? That's my short attention span people. They tend to do better with rhodiola, ashwagandha, ginseng, choline. Are you persistent? Do, do you tend to hold grudges? If things don't go your way, do you get upset? Are you a bit argumentative and oppositional? More serotonin. Uh, so we make something called serotonin mood support. Or sensitive, where you tend to be sad and negative and too empathic, uh, which makes you suffer. And there I just love saffron so much. Or are you cautious? And your 30% of the population struggles with anxiousness and uh, magnesium and theanine and GABA and ashwagandha can be just miraculous for them. So for me, when I think of supplements, I'm like, so what's your type of brain? And then for memory, I like to attack it from multiple ways. Because, you know, the brain never gets sick in one way. So I make something called um, Brain and Memory Power Boost that has ginkgo because it increases blood flow, hooperzine to boost acetylcholine production, N-acetylcysteine, just one of my favorite supplements. It's a super antioxidant, phosphatidylserine, and so on. Oh, I love that. And I love that you just mentioned so many natural things because I do I do see this pandemic of people wanting to get on Adderall. And I'd like to go into that in a little bit, but the prescription-based pills, which just seem to be thrown out left, right, and center instead of us really taking charge and focusing. And I love that you do the brain test to see what do you actually need instead of guessing. And I also am a very big believer of our our vitamins and and all of these things should should be coming from our diet and everything else is literally a supplement. It should not be supplemented to a healthy diet. But I'd like to get into 
dopamine and serotonin, because you talk about that a lot. And I'm curious, kind of chicken and an egg of if someone is depressed or highly stressed out, is this because they are low in serotonin and dopamine or do these go lower because of the emotional triggers that we have? So which comes first and then how do we solve the trauma? Is it the the loss or lower levels of the dopamine and serotonin or do those happen through getting stressed? Well, I think it's both. I think there are people who naturally have lower levels. Uh, so if you think of serotonin for your mood and dopamine for motivation, um, if you grew up in an alcoholic home, I've studied children and grandchildren of alcoholics and they have lower levels of both of them. And so they're more vulnerable to ADD and depression. But if you don't know how to manage your thoughts, um, it's going to lower serotonin almost immediately. When you feel disrespected, it lowers serotonin. And so there's nowhere in school, Nikki, where they teach us to manage our minds. You know, I, I reflect on that and I'm like, that is just freaking insane that in second grade, they should teach you not to believe every stupid thing you think. And they should teach you simple breathing exercises and meditation exercises. They should be teaching you to love and care for your brain, but they don't. And I got to meet Paul Simon recently. It was so fun for me because I love his song, Kodachrome starts off with when I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. And we, we can just do so much better. So, but I think it's both. I think it's, we have genetic vulnerabilities, um, but genes only load the gun. It's what happens to us that pulls the trigger. And, um, and then chronic stress clearly can upset the balance of neurotransmitters in your brain, as can gut health. And I know you know this, but if your gut's not right, your brain's not right because your gut, you know, I think of my hundred trillion bugs in my gut. It's like, this is the military. It's my defense force. And am I feeding the crap? Am I feeding the soldiers crap or am I feeding them so they can be strong and protect me? And in this country, we have a very unhealthy microbiome as a society. Yes. And I actually love that you went there, Dr. Amen, because I, I wanted to talk about gut health as it's become known as the second brain. And you know, people have unhealthy guts due to prescription pills, alcohol, obviously eating the wrong foods, stress. And I'd love to know more about the gut microbiome and brain health and how how the gut is affecting the brain or is the brain affecting the gut? Like once again, where do we focus first to improve our health? Well, they talk to each other all the time. And so I went through a period of grief about 17 years ago and my gut was so unhappy with me. And it was clearly a psychological stress 
that caused my gut to be on overdrive. Um, but yeah, if you had COVID and COVID continues to live in your gut, you're going to be more anxious and you're going to be more depressed. So they talk to each other. It's always both. There's always this feedback. Lou, but if you want a better gut, the first place to start is a better diet <laughs> because, you know, you're feeding the bugs healthy stuff or you're feeding them crap. And, and why would you ever drink a disinfectant? You know, what? what is alcohol? Alcohol is a disinfectant. My wife, who's a nurse, why does she put alcohol on your skin before she gives you a shot? Because it kills the bugs. But yet, as a society, people go, oh, alcohol's a health food. Like, on what planet is it <laughs> a health food? It damages your brain. People are much more likely to beat their spouse or their children when they drink. They're more likely to kill somebody on the highway. And even small amounts of alcohol have been associated with an increased risk of cancer. And I know, like, I'm totally a bummer. But um, I predict, and this is new for me, I predict in 20 years, people are going to look at alcohol like smoking. Like when you see somebody smoking, don't you really, you go like, really? I mean, that's poison. You know, that's poison. I think in 20 years, we're going to do the same thing with alcohol. Now, the wine companies will probably try and take me out. But <laughs> the American Cancer Society came out last year against any alcohol. They said there is no safe level of alcohol. So I understand that. And it's interesting because when I, when I put out a questionnaire to my audience and I said, you know, what do you want to know from Dr. Amen? And people were very thrilled. I also got the response of some people, and I'm just, I'll be honest here. Some people getting turned off from your content saying they loved you, but then they felt that you were unrelatable of saying, you know, just cut the alcohol. It's really bad for you. And during COVID or, you know, 20, uh, in, in 2020, the first year, obviously of the pandemic, sales of alcohol increased by 2.9%, the largest annual increase in over 50 years. And, you know, while I agree about that alcohol is not good for you. It's clear that that and obesity, for example, like CDC said that in 2021, 41.9% of adults had obesity. So it's, I, I hear you. And I'm just curious because if we know, you know, 99.9% .9 of people probably know that Twinkie is not good for them. They know that drinking too much is not good for them. And yet People, I feel like, want realistic solutions to say instead of being like, "Okay, it's it's a poison." I understand it's not good, and like, I'll be the first to admit, I like my wine. I'm not. I have no intention to cold turkey cut it out. And so, I'm curious for myself, and then also, I'm sure a lot of people, even in your audience, of what are some ways that people can either reduce it? Are there supplements to take around it that lessen the effects versus just saying, you know, this is a carcinogenic, don't do it. It's bad for you. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that question. And ultimately I think it comes down to love and do you love things that love you back? And I don't know if you've ever been in a bad relationship. Sure have. <laughs> but I have too. And I'm going to be 69 this year. I'm not doing it. In, I'm not doing it again. 
you know, I found my best friend and, you know, and we work hard on our relationship. I'm damn sure not doing it with a substance. If I love something that doesn't love me, then either I need to be in therapy about it or I need to have like a serious talk with myself. Like I love Rocky Road ice cream, but it hates me. So can I make a healthy dessert that I love? I can, you know, and, and Drew Carey said it really well. He said, eating crappy food isn't a reward. It's a punishment. And so if you knew alcohol was prematurely aging you, the question then becomes, so what do you really want? And it, it's an exercise I do with all of my patients. Like the first thing, I want you to do something called a one-page miracle. One piece of paper. Write down what you want. What do you want in your relationships, in your work, in your money, in your physical, emotional, spiritual health? What do you want? Like I want a kind, caring, loving, supportive, passionate relationship with my wife. I always want that. I don't always feel like that. I get rude thoughts that pop in my head and I choose not <laughs> to say them because it's not going to get me what I want. I want to be cognitively clear all of my life. I love my six children. I never want to live with them. Never <laughs> want to have to live with them. So what does that mean? It means I have to take care of my brain. Because if my brain deteriorates, I'm going to be a burden and I'm going to have less independence. So when, when you look at the things you really want and then you assess alcohol, you're like, so where does it fit? And um, I tell this story in the book. Um, one more Miley story. It, it, you know, I often tell her I was like a dismal failure for eight years with you and then a wild success. And, and it came actually to alcohol and marijuana. Uh, she was like the poster person for marijuana for many years. Uh, Happy Hippie uh, was her, is her foundation. And, and I figured out how to talk to her. I knew she loved animals. And I'm like, you have a part of your brain called the hippocampus. It's involved with memory and mood. And hippocampus is Greek for seahorse because it's shaped like a seahorse. And every day, the hippocampus produces 700 new baby seahorses every day or new baby stem cells. It's this very special part of the brain that produces new cells every day. And I said, whenever you're drinking or whenever you're smoking marijuana, it's killing the babies. And her eyes got really big. She said, Dr. Amen, that is so unfair. You know how much I love animals. And I'm like, I want you to love your brain way more. And if there are things you can do to make your brain bigger, to make your hippocampus stronger, well, wouldn't you want to do that as opposed to being attached to a habit 
that you've had for a long time that somehow makes you feel better in the short run, but actually makes you worse in the long run. That alcohol tends to peak its withdrawal, tends to peak about 24 hours later. And so you use it to relax and you're like, no, I use alcohol to relax. And then 24 hours later, you go, I use alcohol to relax, but it's actually not <laughs> accurate. You're using alcohol to manage withdrawal. Does that make sense? That does. And I, you know, once again, I, I hear what you're saying and I just, I, I coach clients who are trying to lose a lot of weight, get over drug addictions, various things, you know, addictions to toxic relationships. And I don't believe it's as simple as just saying, so I, I hear what you're saying. And I also just don't believe it's quite as simple to be like, okay, you know, does alcohol love me back? Well, I personally don't feel bad about having a few glasses of wine a night. I have really high quality red wine. It's not like I'm taking shots at the bar or anything, <laughs> but I also, it like, it makes me curious then of there's so many addictions. Like it's obviously not just about alcohol. People are addicted to sex. People are addicted to prescriptions. People are addicted to sugar, which is now a chemical dependency. And we know that sugar is more addictive than heroin. So what would you say are, I guess, tips to get off of the addiction? Because it's it's clearly something in the brain, an emotional connection and addiction, a, a physical, a chemical. So I'm curious your thoughts on that, Dr. Amen. Um, so many thoughts. Um Let's start with the, the first step is to love your brain. And when I started imaging in 1991, I was so excited about it. I scanned everybody I knew. I scanned my kids. I scanned an aunt with a panic disorder. I scanned my mother. She had a perfect brain just so irritating but um, <laughs> and I scanned myself and it wasn't healthy because I had a lot of bad habits and I wanted my brain to be as healthy as my mom so I developed a term I call brain envy so that's step number one you have to fall in love with your brain I always say Freud was wrong penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem not seen it once in 40 years Brain is the only organ where size matters. Um, and once you fall in love with your brain, see, that's the first step. And I live in, where do you live? I live in Miami. Oh, I love Miami. I have a home there. Um, I live in Newport Beach most of the year. And we have more plastic surgeons, although Miami has a lot. Uh, and I often say we care more about our faces, our boobs, our bellies, and our butts than we do our brain. But when you see it and you love it, that becomes the first step. And the second step is avoid anything that hurts it and do things that help it. And invariably, we have a high school course called Brain Thrive by 25. And invariably, when we teach it to high schoolers, it's never a girl, it's always a boy who raises his hand when we do the stuff to avoid. And they'll go, how can you have any fun? <laughs> um, and we play a game with them called Who Has More Fun? 
the kid with the good brain or the kid with the bad brain who gets the girl and gets to keep her because he's not a jerk, um, who gets into the college they want, who makes the most money, who has the most meaning and purpose, who doesn't have to live with their children when they're 85. And so if you realize with a better brain, everything in your life is better, that helps. Um, and an independent group studied our course, decreased drug, alcohol, and tobacco use, decreased depression, and improved self-esteem. I tell the story in the book about Nancy, who from Oxford, England, is 82, obese, depressed, uh, couch potato, thought her life was over. And she read the book, and she's like, okay, too much to do. So she just did one thing at a time. And I think that's often the best place to start unless you really have a problem. One thing at a time, she drank more water. That really helped her. Got off the couch and then she's like, well, I'm going to start walking. And that really helped her. Well, I'm going to take supplements and that helped her. And then I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to do new learning. I'm going to teach my family. And over a year, she lost 70 pounds. Wow. And... Um, you know, so everybody doesn't have to do everything at once. Sort of the purpose of change your brain every day, one simple thing a day. And in a year, your life will be magnificently different. Now, addictions are so interesting and so devastating to people. And part of it is you're in a war for the health of your brain. I was watching the World Series and during one game, there were 30 beer commercials. <laughs> I'm like, wow. you know, the level of influence from bad food to um, alcohol to addictive gadgets, it's just everywhere. Um, and so if you realize you're in a war, you have to be armed, you have to be prepared. And addictions go down when love for the brain goes up. But if you're counseling people with addiction, I have a favorite supplement, N-acetylcysteine, 1,200 milligrams twice a day, decreased cravings for alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, compulsive gambling, and trichotillomania, or compulsive hair pulling. It's not how I lost all of my hair. <laughs> you're looking great. Don't worry. Um and, you know, AA has a success rate of 5%. It's awful. Um, and yet everybody's like, got to go to AA. And for some people, one out of 20, it helps them. Um, I, I rewrote the 12-step program with a neuroscience bent. And it starts by what are your goals See, addiction doesn't fit anybody's goals, right? When you do the one, it doesn't fit anybody's goals. Know when it's a problem. And here's how I define addiction. You do something. You drink, do drugs, have sex, and it gets you into trouble. And then you do it again. It's like you're not learning. It's hijacked your decision-making ability. Um, but step three is get your brain healthy. If you fall in love with your brain and you get it healthy, you realize, 
poisoning might not be your best strategy. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting what you say. So I, I went through two eating disorders many years ago, a very traumatic journey that I would never wish on anyone. But it also propelled me into the the industry that I'm in and teaching what I do and learning and studying. And I do wonder if I had had access to information you're teaching or the correct supplements or even the, I would say, support network. And I think that's maybe where AA does does well is that people feel supported because I, when I work with clients, they feel so alone. They feel like their, their, you know, quote unquote problems are, are only them, only they've experienced them. And something that I, I really encourage people to do, which is what you're saying in your book of take one step. I, I ask people, which emotional trigger are you stepping towards? Are you stepping towards, you know, stress, meaning you're stressed out. And then the manifestation is you go to the cupboard, you open it up, you eat something. So it's, it literally takes one step to the cupboard. It takes another step to open it, takes another step to take it out. Or are you feeding the positive emotional triggers of it literally takes one step to put on the shoes. It takes another step to go outside. And so which emotional trigger are you feeding and which one is making you happier in that moment? So it's it's essentially what you're saying, just different language. And I love that you're you're breaking it down to make it so simple of start one, just one thing. So maybe it's, you know, someone who's drinking too much or taking drugs or even prescriptions. It's like, can you reduce it by X amount one day at a time versus, okay, cold turkey, cut it out sort of thing. Is that, am I catching that correct? Yes. And some people, when they see their scan, they just stop. Because they like go, no, I'm not going to do anything to damage my brain, right? They just don't know. And other people, what they're really doing, either with the eating disorder or they're doing with the substance, is they're treating past emotional trauma that got stuck in their nervous system. So I talk a lot in the new book about EMDR, a specific psychological treatment for trauma that I like. You know, if you said, hey, Daniel, what's the single most important thing you've learned from 225,000 scans? This mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives and nobody knows about it. So head trauma, a massive problem in this country, 3 million new head injuries every year. The second thing is early childhood emotional trauma ruins people's lives and nobody knows it. And when you heal physical trauma and heal emotional trauma, um, you just open up a new world of happiness. And uh, at least my experience with eating disorders, there's a lot of emotional stuff. And then, you know, of course, we're in this society where if you get attention for being beautiful, um, that's a drug all by itself. Yes. I mean, social media has become another addiction for people. And that makes me wonder, is there any one, let's say addiction or substance that's worse for the brain. So we know sugar's not good, right? You're talking about alcohol not being good. Marijuana, I know you talk about on your Instagram, prescription drugs, sex, 
addiction to social media or beauty, is there any one thing that's like top of the list, the worst for your brain? So people hate when I say this, but it's data. I published (laughs) the world's largest imaging study on 62,454 scans on how the brain ages. And it's fascinating how the brain ages. Little kids have really busy brains, stabilizes around age 25, and stays that way till about 60, and then it begins to drop off. And then we looked at, well, what accelerates aging? We looked at nicotine. We looked at alcohol. We looked at marijuana. We looked at psychiatric illnesses. And schizophrenia was the worst. Uh, Marijuana was the second worst. And, you know, and I've seen devastated scans from cocaine. I've seen devastated scans from alcohol. But marijuana-aged brains more than all of it. And so I'm horrified that in Durango, Colorado, there's a 1,700% increase in babies born with marijuana in their system, which damages development. And everybody thinks it's innocuous. In fact, during the last presidential campaign, Cory Booker shamed Joe Biden because Joe Biden was hesitant about a national law legalizing marijuana. He goes, I think more study needs to be done. And Cory Booker went, are you high? (laughs) He literally shamed him on national television. And I I was just horrified. Like science doesn't have a place in this discussion. Look at the imaging studies. They're not marijuana makes your brain healthier. It doesn't. They go, but it's plant medicine. And it's like, okay, where does cyanide come from? Or where does opiates come from? They come from plants, not the ones that are necessarily good for you. And and I'm not saying I'm against like all marijuana. Uh, I think it has its place. But the idea that it's innocuous is a lie. Teenagers who smoke have a higher incidence of psychosis, of anxiety, of depression, of suicide. I actually adopted my two nieces because their parents couldn't stop using drugs. And I taught the older one this term, scrometing. She goes, what's that? I said, oh, it's the new term with everybody using marijuana. It's screaming and vomiting at the same time. And many emergency rooms are experiencing an epidemic of scrometing. So, I mean, so fascinating because I've also seen on, on your Instagram, you do get a lot of flack for talking about marijuana and people coming and saying, yeah, but you know, it helped calm me. And I do understand that there are some studies out there that say, yes, it has the calming effect and, and can help in PTSD. But I'm curious then to know one part one of the question, why is it so bad if it's touted as being good in some studies and, whatever it might be used for in a medicinal purpose. And then part two of that is how does that reflect other plant medicines? Like we know the rise of mushrooms and ayahuasca and, and even um, ecstasy and ketamine are starting to get, you know, the rise. Like I did a whole ketamine 
dose and um, supervised. And it was mind blowing, <laughs> literally mind blowing. And uh, but also maybe it was bad for my mind. I don't know. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts both on, you know, why marijuana is bad and in comparison to other let's say plant-based and medicinal drugs being used for trauma, PTSD, depression. Well, I think it's, it's a, and, and I said this, uh, I have a foundation, the change your brain foundation, uh, where we're focused on ending the concept of mental illness and at our big gala, I said the big innovations for 2023 in psychiatry are marijuana, magic mushrooms and ketamine. The street drugs of the 60s are making a comeback. And often with no foundational work with teaching people not to believe every stupid thing they think, with teaching people diaphragmatic breathing or meditation or the safer supplementation that we talked about earlier. People are just like, fix me and let's have ketamine or fix me and let's do magic mushrooms or fix me and let's do marijuana that decreases motivation for a lot of people and is not great for brain function. So I, I sit back and, you know, I have 11 clinics around the country. We see over, uh, I mean, we see 10,000 patient visits a month and, um, a lot of our patients have gone for ketamine. We think the response rate is nowhere near what uh, the ketamine clinics claim. You know, for an, our experience with a lot of people is response rates around 10%. And yes, you might have a mind-blowing experience, but is it making your brain healthy? You know, I'm like a huge fan of Will Smith, I was a consultant on the movie Concussion. And so February of last year, right before the Oscars, I read his autobiography and I loved it. And you could just you totally concede the emotional trauma that he'd experienced. And then he said he'd done ayahuasca 14 times. And you could clearly see during the Oscars, it had not fixed him. <laughs> I'm like, I just don't know the people it's fixed and I've done scans. So my patient's like, I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, let me scan you before and after. And the after scans are not better balanced. And ultimately that's my, what I want for you. What I want for you is for your brain to be as beautiful as you are and to be functioning right. And I see many of the plant medicines disrupt function. Now, could that be a good thing? You know, how does electroconvulsive therapy work? It disrupts the circuits in your brain and it works. I mean, it's barbaric, but it's effective. I'm like, I wonder if there's a better way. So you've mentioned this a few times in a better way, because I know that you, you talk about breathing and you're not a fan of box breathing, right? The four by four by four, you have a certain breathing technique and I'd love for you to go over what this is and, and why it is in your words, more important and better for your brain versus any other sort of breathing. So I'm not, not a fan of box breathing. I'm a fan of whatever works for you. What I've discovered 
well, and I didn't discover it. It's what I read in the research, that if you take twice as long to breathe out as you breathe in, it triggers a parasympathetic response. And so what I teach my patients is the 15-second breath. And if you can do this, it will break a panic attack in under two minutes, I promise. Four seconds in, big breath. And I teach people to breathe diaphragmatically to keep your chest still. Use your belly to breathe. So your diaphragm, the big bell-shaped muscle between your chest cavity and your abdominal cavity. So when you breathe in, stick your belly out as far as it'll go. And pretty women have trouble with this because they're used to holding their gut, their bellies in and they wear tight clothes. So I always tell people don't wear tight clothes. And so when you breathe in, stick your belly out, breathe in for four, hold it for a second and a half, and then take eight seconds to breathe out and hold it for a second and a half. And I've seen that just be miraculous for so many people. And it's, again, something they should teach you in elementary school because panic disorder is a big deal and that's why people drink or why they smoke pot because they don't know how to manage their anxiety. And like I'm not a fan of benzos, it's sort of the same reason why I'm not a fan of marijuana. It's like, well, can I teach you to do this naturally easily without side effects, right? The whole idea you learn in medicine is first do no harm. And um, I, I just find it empowering for myself and for my patients. Agreed. And, and I didn't mean that you, you're opposed to the box breathing. I've, I've just heard in other interviews of this this breathing technique. And I agree because it's so many people don't understand that we're in fight or flight. Literally the moment we wake up, check our phone, ding, ding, ding. You know, we're getting woken up right in the middle of our cortisol cycle in sleep. And then it's like, wham, bam, go, go, go. And so I love what you're saying that it dropped it like in 90 seconds, it can drop you into the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest and, you know, calm the nervous system. So speaking of do no harm, this is a really interesting one for me because, or this next question, Dr. Amen, which is about the this uh, food provided in schools, which I think is atrocious, and also what's being given at hospitals, right? You, you go into hospital and they're like, okay, you have to eat, here's you know your white bread sandwich or whatever it might be. And we know science, uh, it, there are a billion studies, okay, maybe not a billion, but there's a lot of studies out there that say, these sort of foods and school foods increase inflammation, you know, increase brain fog, decrease energy, and so and are worse for our gut health. So why do you think we are being misled, I guess, from like the highest levels on we're eating for our health or these are healthy for us in a place where shouldn't we be teaching people like the pandemic? Shouldn't we be teaching people? what health really is, what to eat, and, and why Why are these quote-unquote foods, even though they're not, being served at places like this where people are the most vulnerable to not knowing? That's the war that we're in. The pharmaceutical industries, the you know big food industries, they own Congress, they own the government, and the messages we get are toxic. 
to us. I mean, it's horrifying when you go to the hospital and they feed you crap. It's like, how does that make any sense? And if there's a health food aisle in your grocery store, what does that say about the rest <laughs> of the store? Um, that, no, I just, I believe this, that we are in a war for the health of our brain. Everywhere you go, someone's trying to shove bad food down your throat that will kill you early. I did the Daniel plan with Pastor Rick Warren, and it actually came out of a prayer. Um, I'd finished my second book on the connection between physical health and mental health, uh, Change Your Brain, Change Your Body. And I, then I went to church and watched, you know, hundreds of donuts for sale and hot dogs and the ice cream festival they had the night before. And I just uh, was furious that I'm going to get my soul fed and these bastards are trying to kill me. And I prayed God would use me to change the culture of food at church. And during the prayer, I'm like, this is the dumbest prayer you've ever prayed. How is that going to happen? But two weeks later, you know, Rick Warren, who's the senior pastor, one of the largest churches in the world, called me and said, I'm fat. My church is fat. Will you help me? And I'm like, why are they trying to hurt me at church? And of course, they never think of it that way. Why are they trying to hurt me in the hospital? Why are they trying to hurt my kids with teaching them to count with candy corn? Um, it's, it's, it's either evil or it's ignorance. And I'll go with ignorance, but it's evil and it's destroying the, the health of America to think we can solve this with marijuana or we can solve it with a school lunch program that is mostly crap. And so with that, what are some tips that you would give or, or simple tips to the mom who's listening to this with kids in school or someone who's going into the hospital or someone that is just looking to get off of alcohol or maybe cut down on marijuana or even just improve their brain because they're inspired by this conversation? Well, I mean, the most important thing you can do for people you love is be the message. If, you know, my first core value is authenticity. If I don't live the message, I suck as a messenger. So if I love my family, I'm modeling every day. I'm modeling health or I'm modeling illness. It really does have to start with me. And then stop spending money on things that hurt people. You know, I mentioned I adopted my nieces. They were both addicted to hot Cheetos. And now they're not because I'm like, no, I don't spend money on things that could hurt you. If you want to spend your money on it, that's up to you. But I'm not spending mine. <laughs> and so it's the messages you give with love. You model it. Have a good relationship with them. And they're going to want what you have. One of my favorite days in change your brain every day is, and I got a lot of crap about this. It's how to make your child a Republican, a Democrat, or anything you want. And people say, that's so unfair. That's so manipulative. And I'm like, stop it. We're all manipulative. It's just, you know, the more sophisticated you are, the harder it is to tell. I'm telling you how to make them a Republican, a Democrat, or anything you want. 
your children, if they're bonded to you, will pick your values. If they hate you, they will pick the opposite values just to piss you off. And so if you want your kids to be healthy, you need to spend time with them. You need to listen to them. You need to notice what you like about them more than what you don't like about them. And if you're connected to them, odds are they're going to pick your values. And that applies to food as well. A hundred percent. And I see so often with clients where they love their kids, they would do anything for their, their kids, especially those who've gone on the IVF journeys or, you know, adopted them. And then I have clients who are severely overweight. And I ask, what are you modeling to your kids right now by, you know, hiding in the bathroom and binging or, you know, going to Starbucks or not loving yourself enough to cut, cut it out and not even have it in your house. And they're like, I would never talk to my kid that way. But they talk to themselves, forgetting that the kid literally models everything that the parent does. So I love that you say that. And I guess with the closing of this interview, which I could go on forever, you're you're just a joy to talk to because of all your knowledge and stories. Is there anything from the book, Change Your Brain Every Day, of that you really want someone to take away? Like one step or one applicable thing that you really believe that like they should go pick up this book and read it because of this one thing in the book. Brain and mental health are daily practices that it's like spiritual health. It's like physical health. It's a daily practice. And I'm going to give you the daily practices. My favorite of all the exercises is when you go to bed at night. For me, what I do is I say a prayer and then I go, what went well? today. And I start at the beginning of the day and I'm looking and the negative stuff will pop up and I just sweep it away. No time, time to go. What went well? And I, I, it's a treasure hunt, you know, cause like you, my day's busy and cool things will happen and I'll overlook them. And I hold on to them, which makes my sleep better. And I've been doing this for a long time. And about three years ago, my dad died. And it was awful, awful, awful day. And when I went to bed at night, I went, what went well today? And the, you know, the critic in my head went, seriously, we're doing this today? But because it's my habit, I did it. And I just remembered such a couple of really beautiful poignant moments throughout the day, including holding his hand before the mortuary took him away and it was so soft. And then I went to sleep. And that's how you manage hard times is you develop the habits before the hard times happen. So you can survive them uh, with grace. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amen. Your new book, Change Your Brain Every Day, Simple Daily Practices to Strengthen Your Mind, Memory, Moods, Focus, Energy, Habits, and Relationship comes out March 21st. I will put all of your information in the show notes, but for those listening and maybe they're driving, where can people find you? Um, amenclinics.com. So amen, like the last word in a prayer, clinics.com or at doc 
doc underscore Amen on Instagram or Doc Amen on TikTok of all places. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not hard. Which you go viral literally everything you post. It's <laughs> it's pretty mind blowing. I gotta say. Thank you so much. What a joy, Mickey. Thank you for inviting. Thank you. What a yeah, beautiful, beautiful interview. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. And until next week, here's to a sharper life.